Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Good morning. Welcome to Medicine on Call. Today I have a really important show and a very special guest joining me. State Senator Tom Davis from South Carolina is joining me today um, to talk about new legislation that's passed in South Carolina, which I think, you know, after reading it, I'm actually kind of uh, intrigued by it. Um, um, Senator Davis, thank you so much for joining me. Good morning. Great to be with you, Dr. George. I know you have tons of things that you could be doing, so it's really an honor and a pleasure to talk with you for the next few minutes. Um, tell us a little bit about your your legislation and yourself first. I mean, how long sure. have you been a state senator? Well, for myself, I mean, I, I'm an attorney. I practiced law in Beaufort, South Carolina for 33 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, for your listeners, Beaufort County uh, is where Hilton Head uh, is, is located. So we're in the bottom southeastern corner of South Carolina. And uh, starting in 2002, I got involved in politics. I helped my old college uh, friend, Mark Sanford, run for governor. I moved into his basement and took a leave of absence from my law practice and and ran his campaign. And um, he got elected governor. And so he went up to Columbia, and I found it hard to go back to my law practice when he was up there trying to accomplish some of the things that we had talked about during the campaign. So I took another leave of absence from my law practice and eventually became Governor Sanford's chief of staff. And then in 2008, I decided to run for public office myself and ran for state senate. And I have, I have been the state senator for Beaufort County for the past 10 years. Um, I still have my law practice. Uh, we uh, were in session five months out of the year. So the remainder of the year, I practice law. And I'm married uh, to my wife, Reed, for 33 years. We have three daughters. And life is pretty good right now. And um happy that we got this particular bill passed, Dr. George. And, and, and what, it, what it does is it expands access to health care here in South Carolina by allowing advanced nurse practitioners to provide the health care services that they're trained to provide. We have very parochial laws, or we did have very parochial laws in South Carolina before my legislation passed, that severely restricted the sort of things that nurse practitioners could do. You know, primary among it, they could not practice outside of a 45-mile radius of where a supervising physician was. I mean, that's been in South Carolina law for, for decades. And most physicians are located in urban areas. So if you, you know, do the radius, uh, you know, technique there, you, you find out that nurse practitioners are actually legally unable to render medical care or provide health care services to rural areas. And so this particular bill strikes down those barriers and allows nurse practitioners to provide health care services, particularly in rural areas. Well, when you say outside of a 45-mile radius, does that mean that they're totally autonomous or there's still practice agreements in place? Yeah, no, they're not autonomous. And uh, that's one of the other the features of this particular uh, bill is it allows physicians and advanced nurse practitioners. And it's important to understand what we're talking about here are nurses that have, you know, four years undergraduate degree, at least a master's in clinical experience before they get that designation. 
but advanced nurse practitioners under my legislation can enter into written practice agreements with physicians so that physicians can determine you know the range of uh, services and scope of services that they're comfortable having the advanced nurse practitioner provide because you know certain nurse practitioners you know may have more experience or may be more qualified than others and there may be a confidence level on the part of physicians and so this legislation allows nurse practitioners and physicians to independently negotiate those practice agreements to define those scope of services. Well, like for my listeners who may not understand how the the relationship that you just described between uh, you know like a, a service agreement basically. Right. The the doctor has the malpractice, am I correct? And the nurse Yeah, and in most cases that? what you what I found out Dr. George is that nurse practitioners also carry um, malpractice insurance. So it's not a case of it only being the physician uh, that has the coverage in the event there's something wrong. Um, but you're correct. I mean, in, in the relationship that we're envisioning with this legislation, there'd be a team. There'd be a nurse practitioner and a physician pursuant to a written practice agreement. Um, both would have uh, malpractice insurance. And the scope of uh, what the nurse was able to provide would be defined in that written agreement. But, but independent of that, what we also did is, is in regard to certain other matters, even if it isn't in a written practice agreement, we expanded the scope of things that nurse practitioners can do on their own. Now, they're not going to cover things that we expect physicians to handle, but there are a range of things that nurse practitioners can do, uh, and so we expand what they're authorized to do to be in accordance with what they are taught now uh, in school and in, when getting a master's degree and, and updating our code to reflect that today's advanced nurse practitioners have a wide range of abilities that is materially different uh, from decades ago when the law was first passed. Well, actually, I have two questions. One is, going back to the initial premise, who has the liability when a nurse is taking care of a patient hundreds, well, hundreds but several miles away from a doctor and there's you know, there's a bad outcome. What? Who's liable for that? There'd be joint and several liability there. I mean, there'd be liability, obviously, to the nurse practitioner for providing the immediate care, but then on an agency basis, on a principal-agent relationship basis, there would be imputed liability to the physician as well. So, you know, in terms of, you know, if there's a bad outcome or if, if, uh, if a patient is harmed, um, there would be two responsible parties. There would be the advanced nurse practitioner that rendered the direct care, and, and then on an agency basis there would be imputed liability to the supervising physician. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a quick second. Mm -hmm. If the nurse is in consultation with the doctor, the doctor makes a recommendation, the nurse doesn't necessarily follow through with it, and so that's not, they're not on the same page. Right. How, do, how does the doctor protect themselves from well, that. Yeah, it, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. Obviously, what a doctor has to do in a tort context when there's, when there's an allegation of medical malpractice, mm -hmm. you have to um, demonstrate that the doctor did not act within the scope of care, did not act in, in, in a reasonable way. And so if you have a situation where a physician, you know, provided clear guidance and instructions um, and the nurse practitioner failed to follow them, uh, that would be, uh, my understanding of the law, that would insulate the liability from, uh, insulate the doctor from vicarious liability because the doctor would have exercised reasonable care. But really, it's fact-dependent. It would depend upon the facts of the case. 
you know, whether or not the doctor was in regular contact with the nurse practitioner, whether clear instructions were given. I mean, th- those would all be fact-dependent issues. But, mm. um, but your point is well taken. I think that, that doctors and medical physicians can still insulate themselves from liability for adop- adopting best practices in regard to working with nurse practitioners. Well, another thing, I know we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but before, I just want to frame the next question okay. about training. I understand that there's uh, been a difference in the education of, of the nursing uh, profession over the last you know, several years, but it's not quite the same type of training that a physician gets. Oh, no doubt. Right? I mean, so, there, there's always going to be a disparity in the level of expertise, and I would be the first to concede that, that physicians and medical doctors have much more training and have a much broader range of abilities than nurse practitioners do. There's no question about that. Well, can you clarify uh, what is the scope of practice for a nurse? What, what are the things that have been expanded under the new law that they're now able to do? Because I'm still a little fuzzy on that. Sure. There's, well, the, the law itself goes ahead and defines uh, the range of things that they're allowed to do. And I'll just go ahead and, and, and read from that mm-hmm. if, if that's helpful, if I yeah. can just list the things that nurse practitioners are, are permitted to do, um, independent of there being a practice agreement. But uh, the main thing is that, you know, if they want to practice medicine or if they want to go ahead and provide health care services, they basically have to be tied back to that written practice agreement. Now, there are certain non-medical things that nurse practitioners are allowed to do, such as certifying or recommending somebody for physical therapy. Um, and there's a definitional section in the bill itself that defines, you know, what are the things, if you get an advanced nurse practitioner degree, what are the things that you are trained to do? And, and it lists those particular things. Mm-hmm. Like refer people for hospice and for physical therapy. Yeah, I those are things that I've read, read in the in the um, in the in the law itself. Right, and and again, I mean, it's, it, I think really the the thing that's that's most important about this agreement is it or this bill, excuse me, is it gives flexibility to the the medical doctor, the physician, and the nurse practitioner to in a written agreement specifically def- define the scope of things that nurse practitioners can do under the auspices of that supervising physician. And, and it, it's like in my law practice, I have a paralegal who I've worked with for 33 years. Mm-hmm. She probably knows more about real estate than I do. And I have a great degree of comfort in regard to how she handles things um, if clients come in, uh, even if it is under my direct supervision. By contrast, if there's somebody that's coming right out of school or they have a, a paralegal degree but they don't have any practical experience, I'm going to be very wary and very hands-on in regard to what that paralegal can do. So what the law contemplates and what it allows is for a physician, if there is a long-term working relationship with a nurse practitioner, and if that nurse practitioner has demonstrated over time a great degree of expertise, it allows those two individuals on a contract basis to define the scope. So, you know, rather than trying to hammer into a one-size-fits-all uh, these are the a list of things that nurse practitioners can do. It makes it more flexible and dependent upon what the supervising physician is comfortable with. Well, that's that. Thank you for clarifying that. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call.
Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with State Senator Tom Davis of South Carolina, co-author of uh, a bill, S-345, um, which expands the scope of practice for nurse practitioners. And before the break, Senator, we were talking about the, the fact that there are doc- the doctors and nurses together collegially f- decide what services the nurse is going to offer. I just want to clarify, in terms of the, the bill, mm-hmm. can anybody, can any nurse practice without such an agreement in place? What, what can they do without such an agreement in place? Is that no. the question, Dr. Can, George? Can they practice without such an agreement in place? So Cer- there is no things. doctor. I mean, for instance, the, the, author, the bill allows nurse practitioners, independent of that written agreement, mm-hmm. um, to provide non-controlled uh, prescription drugs. Um, they can refer a patient to physical therapy. They can pronounce death and sign death certificates. Um, they can issue an order for a patient to receive hospice care. They can certify that an individual is handicapped. I mean, those are all things that they can do um, independent of the authorization that's in the written practice agreement. Um, and, and that's why I say, you know, really the linchpin of this bill is the written uh, practice agreement portion of it, in that that's really on a case-by-case basis and dependent upon, you know, the confidence that a physician has and the expertise that the nurse practitioner has, it really gives them a chance to fashion um, a, a way of providing health care that, that I think is really going to serve South Carolinians well. And, and, and it's important to understand, Dr. George, where we are here in South Carolina right now. Mm-hmm. We, we rank 44th in overall health, um, according to United Health Foundation's health report, and that translates to an F. And parts or all of the 46 counties in South Carolina are officially designated as medically underserved. Um, we have eight counties without any OBGYN physicians. Um, we have 19 counties that have 10 or fewer family physicians, seven counties that have less than five, and we actually have one county that doesn't have a primary care physician at all. I mean, so what we're talking about here is not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, obviously, in the best of all worlds, there would be medical doctors and physicians located throughout South Carolina, even in rural areas, and everybody would have immediate access to them. But that isn't the reality on the ground here in South Carolina. We, we only have 3,500, you know, primary care physicians in the state. And with the 3,600 nurse practitioners we have, if you go ahead and, and start to unleash some of the potential there, if you allow them to provide the level of care that they're trained to provide, you can really effectively serve some areas that are right now going without health care services at all. So, I mean, that's, that's really the objective here. And uh, there's always going to be things that a, a physician has to do, and it certainly is always the choice of somebody to have a physician render the care as opposed to a nurse practitioner. But at its heart, too, you know, part of what this legislation says is you as the consumer, you as the individual, when you have a problem, when you have a health care need, I mean, this allows you to determine the level of need or level of access and care uh, that you want to secure. So there's a liberty component to this as well. Well, I noticed, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a clause in the, in the bill that states that if a nurse is not, or I should say whoever's I'm going to try to put this in a nice PC way, but you can't say that you're a doctor and you're not, and that would be grounds for for 
some sort of punitive. Absolutely. I mean, that's, there's a consumer protection component to this. And, you know, one thing you absolutely do not want, and the legislation expressly prohibits nurse practitioners, uh, whether they're advanced or regardless of the degree they might hold, they can't hold themselves out as being a physician. I mean, that's absolutely clear. Um, and, and I don't want to try to make the argument, and, and some sometimes it devolves into this, into that, you know, are nurse practitioners as qualified as physicians are? And, and I, I think we get to stipulate that medical doctors have far more training, and, and they have a far broader range of expertise. But the fact of the matter is, in a large number of cases, a lot of the emergent needs of people, especially in regard to preventative health care and, and this routine health care, a lot of times that is something that can be handled very competently and relatively less expensively by a nurse practitioner. And uh, in a free society where individuals are free to make their own choices, as long as you don't have people misrepresenting themselves, as long as the consumer knows exactly the level of care that they're getting, they ought to be free to choose that level of care. Oh, I agree with you. But I think part of our problem in our society is that it's not clear and that there's a lot of uh, misrepresentation and it's cloudy as to yeah, what the I difference is. Yeah, and I think, you know, to the degree that that's the case, and you're right, we need to be very clear that individuals are not authorized or do not, in fact, represent themselves to be something that they're not. And uh, this law provides that that is a violation of the code. There would be civil liability for any nurse practitioner that held themselves out uh, to be a medical professional. I mean, so that's really the best you can do uh, in, in society is to go ahead and provide liability for bad acts. And, you know, in the instances where people go ahead and exceed their scope of authority, they would be subject to liability uh, to that patient. Yeah, well, that's good news because, I mean, at least it's not a Wild West that way. That's right. But have you thought about the other side of the coin here? You know, the medical education in our country has been damaged. I mean, there's the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which limited the number of residency spots throughout the country. So are you aware that there are thousands of doctors who've graduated from medical school but cannot get a residency and therefore cannot practice medicine? And that whole cohort would be able and willing to go into any state, into any rural area, and actually provide services. You make an excellent point, Dr. George. And, and I think in terms of, of addressing our health care issues um, in America um, and in the country at large, we have focused in on the insurance aspect of it. We have focused in on providing individuals with, with coverage, quote-unquote, that's what the Affordable Care Act was all about. But what we really haven't done is focused on the supply side of the equation. We haven't broken down the barriers uh, to individuals who want to provide services. And you put your finger on one of them. And, and I think that, that any approach to addressing health care in our country and to improving access and to driving down prices, quite frankly, is to remove those barriers to providers, to individuals who are trained and ready, willing, and able to provide that health care. I think it's a far better public policy to focus on the supply side of the equation, to actually get more individuals out there, whether they be physicians or physician's assistants or nurse practitioners. I mean, get them out there and break down the barriers, because I think that's the most effective way to address access and cost. Well, I, you know, I tend to disagree with you on that one. When I've seen, and I can tell personally from experience of having patients who have seen nurse practitioners gone to urgent care, less um, trained individuals, there's a lot of misdiagnoses that go on. I just trained a tonsil abscess yesterday 
from a patient who went to an urgent care for over a week, treated with the same antibiotic, and then when the culture was negative on a steroid, not knowing that just because your culture is negative, it could be a false negative. So now you have injected more costs into a system, more morbidity into a system because of lack of knowledge. We're not all the same. And I think that that one statement actually is not, it's, it does a disservice to the patient. I'm seeing the front line. I'm sure you've spoken with doctors about the same, same problems. We're all part of a healthcare team. That's not, a, that's not a question. The question as, is, what should be the scope of practice? What should be the where boundaries are set? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And there's been this, this mindset that the mid-level providers are cheaper than physicians. It's not true. Because when you start talking about tests ordered, about diagnoses missed, about medications that shouldn't be prescribed, for example, it ends up costing the system more. And we're seeing now the hospitals are actually changing their workforce. In Texas, they've fired a whole group of pediatricians, and they're replacing them with nurse practitioners. It's because it's all about cost on the corporate setting. And this is kind of a system that's geared to push uh, hospitals, urgent cares, other you know, healthcare providing services to use the mid-levels as cheaper labor. I guess I mean I don't necessarily think we're saying different things. I mean, but but I think you have to understand that in South Carolina, and I'm not sure how it is where, where your practice, Dr. George, but in South Carolina, again, we have many counties um, that have a severe lack of physicians, and and you point out that a lot of physicians um, are, are prohibited or barred from from providing services because of regulations. Um, but the fact of the matter is, in South Carolina right now. Um, we have some counties with no OBGYN physicians, eight of them. We have one county with no primary care physician. We had a law that actually said that if you're a nurse practitioner, you couldn't provide care, you know, 45 miles outside of where a doctor was, even though telemedicine was available. What, what this legislation does is it allows nurse practitioners to avail themselves of telemedicine techniques. It allows physicians and nurse practitioners now um, to have that relationship and to use telemedicine and to break down those those radius requirements. So I don't disagree with you. I mean, there's always going to be instances where a medical doctor has to be the one that renders the care. And I think you make a good point that we have to guard against, you know, having the mean descend and we just simply move away from a system where physicians are involved and move solely toward lower-cost providers. That That's not the objective here at all. The objective here is to allow individuals who are trained to provide a certain range of medical services, as nurse practitioners are, with the requirement that they have a master's degree, to allow them to do the things that they are trained to do, and nothing more than that, unless the physician and the relationship of the nurse practitioner and the written agreement says otherwise. So I don't think we're saying different things, um, but you make a good point that there are always going to be abuses, there are always going to be bad outcomes, and we have to go ahead and and be aware that that takes place. And if there has to be a tweak to the law or if there has to be an amendment or a codicil to guard against that, I'm open to having that done. I think that's a a really good point. Um, Let's take a small break and come back. You're listening to Medicine on Call.
health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with State Senator um, Davis from South Carolina, who's, uh, let me ask you, Senator, is the law, is the bill now a law? Has it been signed by the governor? or is It, it has. Okay. Uh, it was signed by the governor a few days ago. Okay. Um, it, it takes effect, um, I believe it's July 1, which is the beginning of the new fiscal year in South Carolina. So you've got a little bit of lead time um, uh, for the industry to kind of adapt or adjust to what the new rules and regulations are going to be mm-hmm. in regard to what nurse practitioners can do. But yes, the governor, Governor McMaster, signed it into law, and it will take effect at the beginning of our fiscal year on July 1. Well, you know, I've been looking, there's a lot of information out there from various sources, but one struck me that the, there's an argument that she mentioned before the break that there are counties that aren't served by by anybody, and that mm-hmm. nurse practitioners would step into the breach. But when you look at all of the states that have given nurse practitioners more leeway, more latitude, they still congregate in the same areas that physicians are. So they're not going out to rural areas. They're not the, the only game in town. And, and that doesn't seem to make a, a change in the, the status quo. Well, that's yeah, and that's why. And you're right. That is has been the dynamic elsewhere, and that's why we specifically inserted into this particular legislation that advanced nurse practitioners must serve um, in rural or underserved areas. And and underserved areas are defined um, in the bill as being areas where you've got a certain percentage of individuals who are on public assistance, or you know, a certain number of physicians aren't in that county. So we expressly state in this legislation that advanced nurse practitioners must, and that's a requirement, provide services in those underserved rural areas. Because you're right, I mean, um, it's, it's natural economics for individuals to gravitate and to be into areas when there's, you know, a more readily accessible pool of, uh, of, of customers, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do with this bill, and, and one of the, the ways that I really promoted it and explained it and championed it in the state senate, was that it was going to be a way to address the shortage of health care services in our state's rural areas. And so that, that express provision in the legislation was something that was very important to me. Well, let me also expand this and, and play a little bit of devil's advocate. Okay. The people in the rural areas generally are the least, well, least served medically. They have the most complicated medical conditions because they've gone on for, some, in some instances, years without somebody being able to address them. Right. You're putting a workforce technically into an environment where the medical problems are complicated and complex. Does that 
give you pause. I mean, no, but remember, we're not we're not putting them in there alone. We're not putting them in there without there being a supervising physician. There, there's still the responsibility that each nurse practitioner has to have that physician with whom he or she works. Um, there has to be that written agreement that specifies what that nurse can do. Um, it requires the physician, even in cases where the nurse practitioner is rendering that care, it requires that physician to be there in a collaborative role. So it's not a situation where we're simply saying to nurse practitioners, okay, go out into rural areas and, and, and do whatever you can without any assistance. I mean, it, it all ties back and, and it all, you know, plays into this notion of collaborative working between physicians and nurse practitioners. And, it's, and let me be very clear. This is not an independent practice bill. This is not a bill that, that allows nurse practitioners to hang their own shingle out there and provide medical services to people, whether it's in rural or urban areas, without the collaborative participation of a medical doctor. I mean, so it's, it's very clear to understand. I know that some areas do have independent practice statutes. They, they do allow nurse practitioners to hang out their own shingle. That's not what this bill does, though, and, and intentionally so. It does not do that. It requires that collaborative approach. And the thinking here is, if you can have a strong collaborative team, if you can have a medical doctor and a nurse practitioner, advanced nurse practitioner, with a, a very specific written agreement defining what that nurse practitioner can do, that that is a very effective way of providing health care services into underserved rural areas. Well, you know, I see where you're going with it, but in real time and on the front line, that's not exactly what goes on. So you have a doctor miles away from a nurse by telemedicine. It's not quite the same thing as being next door to the nurse practitioner, having a, a consultation outside the patient's door, the doctor going in and actually laying hands on the patient and making an assessment. No this doubt. Is a I mean, there's, there's nothing that can substitute for um, a doctor and a patient being in the same room and making that diagnosis. But what I'd point out, Dr. George, is, I mean, we got to be careful not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. And, and again, we're not talking about a situation where we've got medical doctors or physicians in rural areas that can lay hands on and, and have that immediate relationship with patients. And, and so I take your point. I mean, it's never going to substitute and never be as good as a situation where a person can actually be in a doctor's office and have that one-on-one -on -one immediate, uh, you know, attention. Uh, but again, what we're dealing with here in South Carolina is a crisis situation in rural areas that are completely underserved, and we have to be careful not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good in this particular case. I'm, I totally understand your heart is in the right place on this. I do, and I appreciate that. But there's even studies now that have come out from, uh, what was it, an ER, the Emergency Physicians Monthly, put out a study about doctors and their interaction with mid-levels, and there's a majority of doctors who don't interact with the mid-levels, right? They don't, they, they say they do, but they really don't. So there's this perception that there's oversight, but there's not as much oversight as you might think. Yeah, and that came up during the subcommittee process that, you know, uh, physicians will simply sign up and say, yep. yes, they're supervising nurse practitioners and, and collect a monthly fee for doing that, but then in reality don't in fact provide that supervising, and that's a great point. And, and what we tried to do with this legislation, again, to guard against that, 
was to require these written practice agreements, to expressly require that there be regular communication between doctors and nurse practitioners, so that it wasn't something just in form and not reality. And, and I think, that, you know, the points you're making are well taken. And, and any time you change public policy and any time you change the way you go about doing business, it's always important to look at what actually happens as a result. What's happening on the ground? Are, are there abuses? Are people getting good access to health care? And I think that to the extent that there are shortcomings or to the extent there are abuses, we need to address that in subsequent legislation. So this isn't sort of like, okay, we're going to go ahead and hand down these tablets from on high, and this mm-hmm. is the way it's going to be for all time. Mm-hmm. You know, any time in public policy and legislation when you're changing the established way of doing things in a certain way, you've got to look at what the actual consequences are and then be ready to you know, come back as a legislator. And if you've made a mistake, to frankly admit it and take steps to correct it. Well, that's good to know, because the the trend now is replacement of physicians uh, in hospital setting. Whole emergency rooms are now being run by nurse practitioners and physician assistants. I can tell you from the, I'm an independent doctor practicing Mm -hmm. here in Georgia, and people go into the ER now, they're not getting treated, they're getting a referral to go to a private doctor for treatment. That is not providing care. That's costing the patient a lot more money than, than they should have to pay, and they're taking longer to get care. I mean, so something I would think, hopefully, needs to be put in place that the actual the, the, the place of service is staffed accordingly. We've had whole, whole ERs at this point that don't have ear, nose, and throat coverage, neurology, OBGYN. How do they call themselves ERs and people roll up with those problems and they have right. to be shipped elsewhere? These are things to me that we really do need to start addressing because you make it does excellent affect points. And quite frankly, I wasn't I wasn't aware on on the supply side of the equation because again, as a free market person, I'm always looking at addressing things from a supply and demand standpoint. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, I wasn't aware until talking to you just now, Doctor George, that there are these impediments. Um, to more physicians coming into the healthcare sector. And so I think what I'm hearing you say, and I'm in complete agreement, that if there are barriers or if there are restrictions or things that are preventing, you know, doctors and physicians from actually coming in and being able to provide these cares, we need to break down those barriers as well. I mean, this isn't a silver bullet. I mean, it's, it's, I mean and nothing with healthcare is going to be solved with one single initiative. So yeah. all these things need to be done. And so you make some excellent points. I mean, in regard to if there are, in fact, situations where medical doctors aren't available um, or in settings where you would expect them to be available, they, in fact, are not, we need to figure out why that's the case and then break down those barriers to make sure that situation doesn't occur. I totally agree with you. I mean, the Affordable Care Act is a, a complete, uh, you know, example of unintended consequences. Right. When you read that, that, that law, they spend a lot of money on, on educating mid-levels, on, on medical assistance, on the, you know, the allied healthcare professionals. Absolutely nothing was spent on increasing the number of residency spots for doctors. Well, nothing. I think you put your finger on a, a, a major public policy defect in that particular legislation, and I, I'm in complete agreement that it needs to be addressed as well. I know. My thing is we don't have to recreate the wheel, right? We have a pool of physicians, doctors, graduated from medical school, passed their, their, um, their training, their um, post-graduate exams, 
but because they can't get a one-year residency, they're out there doing other things. Right. Though you could find OBGYNs to go into your rural areas. You, trust me, you would have people, doctors, flooding South Carolina, ready and willing, willing and able to help you, and actually act like um, mentors or or work with physician agreements with the nurse practitioner so they're not so far away from doctors. I have any states, and I guess I'm, I'm not supposed to be the one asking questions, but I'm wondering <laughs> if any states have initiatives you know, to try to break down that, that difficulty to get residencies in order to get a, a greater supply of physicians. And, uh, and I'll look into what state-level public policies can be advanced to address that problem because you're, you're, you're drawing attention to you know, something that is of great concern. And, and now that I'm thinking about it, we need to go ahead and make sure not only that nurse practitioners and physician's assistants are allowed to provide the care they're trained to provide, we need to break down some of these barriers or some of these impediments to physicians being able to serve areas as well. You know, I think it be, it all works together, frankly. It does. If you I have more you. doctors to be available to nurse practitioners and physician assistants, they wouldn't be out there on a limb. You know, I've actually spoken with nurse pra- nurses, registered nurses. When we started changing the workforce, the, the face of the workforce, a lot of my friends who practiced for 20, 30 years that were nurses in the ICU, et cetera, left, stopped nursing because they felt that they were being forced to do things they didn't feel comfortable with. Right. Putting in lines, running ICUs without a physician there to oversee. That's not fair to them either. Even Absolutely. though the mindset is nurses are equal to doctors, that's what I think that's what the general push is being made. Yeah, and I can understand how, you know, sometimes large corporations or hospitals or, mm-hmm. or medical companies are just focused on the bottom line and interested in providing, you know, care at the lowest, uh, you know, cost level so that they can maximize profits. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I, I think if, if that dynamic is, is holding sway, and if you have a situation where nurse practitioners are being forced into areas that, quite frankly, they aren't trained or not comfortable, I think you're going to find the advanced nurse practitioner community pushing back because that is not what they want either. I mean, all that they want is to the extent they were trained to do something, if they have the ability to do something, they want the ability to develop a relationship with the doctor that allows them to do that. I think they would be equally uncomfortable with a situation where market forces are driving them to actual providing services that they weren't qualified to provide. So I'll, I'll be watching out for that. Um, I quite frankly wasn't aware that that was such a prevalent problem, but you make a great point in that regard, Dr. George. Oh, man, it's a huge problem. And I've seen, I've been done uh, contract work, medical work throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm struck at, struck by when I'm covering an emergency room, whether that's in Maine or you know, New Mexico, I've been around a lot of places, so I've seen a lot of delivery systems. These folks are coming from 100 miles away for ENT services because their ER doesn't have one or mm-hmm. no neuro. I mean, these are airway emergency, you know, right? Uh, emergency tracheostomy. You cannot be in a situation where there's not enough help to get things done because patients die. No question. And no question. I mean, it's, it's an all the above strategy, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's not just about empowering nurse practitioners no. to do what they're trained to do. It's also about allowing doctors to do what they're trained to do and removing the impediments to them being able to do so. And so um, I think we're saying the same things. And, you know, it's important in any legislation. And I think as policymakers, sometimes we tend to pass a law and sit back, you know, and be satisfied and say, okay, well, we fixed that problem. 
that that's not the case with good public policy. You're constantly looking at, okay, what was the effect of what we passed? Did it accomplish the objective that we intended? Is there better access to health care? Do we have nurse practitioners providing care that's within the scope of what they're able to do? Are there abuses? And then to come back and to make changes if appropriate. So this is an ongoing process. And, uh, again, I would, I would say this. That this particular bill, the, the one that was signed into law here in South Carolina, you know, in the spectrum of things, when you're looking at this particular issue, it's a fairly conservative bill. It, it, it does not establish independent practice. It emphasizes uh, the written agreement between a physician and a nurse practitioner. It, it is very clear that nurse practitioners aren't supposed to provide acts that medical doctors are to provide. So it was, it was our attempt to begin the process of allowing nurse practitioners to do more things. Um, but I'll keep an eye out for those unintended consequences that you mentioned, Dr. George. Thank you so much. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Um, today we're talking about the, the, the law now in effect in South Carolina, uh, S-345, co-authored by uh, Senator Tom Davis. And Senator, I really just want to thank you so much for your willingness to listen and to learn. I mean, this is this is a, something that's involved that that affects patients, and patients should be the focal point of Absolutely. everything. Not doctor and nurse ego, not physician assistant ego. We're we're deliverers of this system to patients, and it needs to work better. And that's one of the things that I was struck by during the subcommittee process is just how dedicated and committed. Uh, medical professionals, physicians, nurse practitioners are two patients. I was truly struck by that. And um, again, as a policymaker, you have to listen very carefully to the people who are actually carrying things out. So I appreciate that sentiment. Well, from an independent doc, you know, you know, out there on the front lines, it's one of the things that we as physicians, I, I don't know if you have the experience, but we're frustrated by the fact that Nobody seems to listen to us, you know, right. and everybody's talking at us, and we seem to be the problem. We're the problem with the cost. We're the problem with the no access. It's it's all laying on the feet of the doctors, and actually, we're not. And we want and, to. And my experience folks. in this process is as was not that at all. I mean, the South Carolina Medical Association and the physicians. I mean, they were extremely um, cooperative and forthcoming in this process. And this truly was a collaborative bill. It wasn't, you know, something, legislation that was passed over the objections of physicians. I mean, the physicians were at the tables, uh, at the table along with nurse practitioners, and they agreed on all of these things. So your point's well taken. You have to have input from those experts and those people that are actually in the field. But it has to be the range of experts, not just academicians, not just doctors who are on, on the staff of, of hospitals who are getting a paycheck and are a part of the corporate system, right. but the independent doctors who are out there who have to see patients and make it work, right? That means people who are paying cash, people who barter, people who have direct primary care practices. We are actually part of the solution. Absolutely. Right? So if you're trying to engage an entire health delivery system. Everybody has to have a voice. And the fact that you, unfortunately, didn't know that there are doctors out there, uh, uh, thousands, literally, who are dying to practice their art. They spent all this money training, and they can't get a job. 
because of residency restrict or, yeah. or, or, or a a, um, a lack of residency positions. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah, but if you know, I don't. I'm not sure if you know how our process works. It's four years of medical school. You have to pass three three sections of a board, part one and two and three. But in order to license, you can pass everything. But if you don't do one year of residency, right. you cannot be licensed, period. Right. That means you'll never be a doctor. There should not be any doctor who's graduated in our country who can't work because of that. I, I agree completely. And I think that would that's probably part of the genesis of the doctor shortage and the lack of um, health care in rural areas. It, it stems from not having enough people and then needing to think outside the box, expand it, extend it. I know it's not the genie's not going back in the bottle, but we do need to make sure that it doesn't go so far off off the track of patient care that we can't get it back. If I took me six six years to do ear, nose, and throat as a postgraduate training, once I leave practice, if you don't have other ENTs coming behind me, you lose a whole section of patient care that can't come back, and that cannot be filled in by mid-level providers because we train differently, right? Understood. So everything, everybody has a has a role and a purpose, and a specialist is just as important as a primary care doctor. Primary care doctor is just as important as a mid-level provider. Everybody has to be in the soup. And I agree with you. I'm a free market person myself. Let the patient choose who they want to see. But their choice shouldn't be made for them because of absence or lack of. Then Fair you've point. taken their choice away from them. Fair point. So, um, you know, I really... Do you, what does your other colleagues think about this, this, uh, this law? Well, I mean, there was a lot of attention that we paid to the prescription process. I mean, as you as you know, right now we have an opioid crisis, and everybody's yeah. radar, you know, is is in regard to okay, are we opening the floodgates to controlled substances being put in the hands of people for abuse? And mm-hmm. so, a large portion of this legislation deals with what sort of prescriptive authority um, that nurse practitioners can have, and we were very detailed in this regard. Um, requiring the nurse practitioner to um, petition for prescriptive authority, requiring that there be a specific written agreement um, with a physician, Mm -hmm. um, allowing it to include Schedule II non-narcotic substances only if they're in the practice agreement, Um, allowing Schedule II narcotic substances if it's in the practice agreement, but limiting the prescription not to exceed a five-day supply. I mean, so we really went you know, out of our way to make sure that we weren't somehow opening up the floodgates, you know, for opioids or opi- uh, opium-based medicines mm-hmm. to get into the hands of people who uh, who are going to abuse them. And so um, a lot of the debate and a, a large portion of the bill um, focuses on how do we control that? How do we make sure physicians are involved? How do we make sure that this particular prescriptive authority isn't abused? And um, again, this is an example, Dr. George, of let's see if what we did accomplishes the objective. Let's see if it goes ahead and 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 facilitates the access to health care, but at the same time doesn't create a prescriptive opioid problem. And um, I think everybody is committed, all the doctors and all the nurse practitioners and people that worked on this bill are committed to looking and seeing how it works in practice and then coming back in to make changes if necessary. So I, I think that's the, you know, the point that I would leave your listeners with is in public policy, you know, whether it's at the federal level, state level, passing a bill is rarely, if ever, 
the end of the matter. You always have to see how it works in practice, and you always have to have an open mind and a willingness to make changes if necessary. I really appreciate that. I wish the federal level would work that way. <laughs> well, you know, unfortunately, we tend to look at things as a zero-sum game, you know, mm-hmm. that, that certain parties win and certain parties lose. This is a case where we want everybody to win. We want the patients to win. We want there to be enough physicians to provide care. We mm-hmm. want advanced nurse practitioners to provide the level of services that they're able to provide. We want physicians' assistants to be able to do so. Um, but what you're saying, I think, is the same thing I'm saying. We want to make sure that the patient's interests are well served. And, um, and I think that's the approach we have to have with anything in this regard. Well, you know, you're speaking music to my ears because it's all about us listening to each other. Absolutely. I mean, this this is not a situation where you've got battle lines drawn and competing camps and mm-hmm. one side win and one side loses. I mean, the objective here is to have the patients win. And and, I, and, and my experience in South Carolina here has been exactly that. I mean, the, the physicians, the nurse practitioners, the physician's assistants, the hospital association, I mean, everybody, I was impressed with the fact that they did have that objective in mind. It wasn't about economic turf. It wasn't about preserving an economic advantage. It was all about how can we increase the level of health care access and how can we make sure it's quality access. Well, I think, I think that we can agree on the fact that it has to be everybody involved. It cannot be just one-sided. And that would be, to me, the, the linchpin or the, uh, the foundation, There's respect for each other. Absolutely. It's a collaborative for, effort. Exactly. Everybody has their role to play in this. So there's no devaluation of anybody. None at all. Right? And then that would, that would make it better for the patient. Absolutely. You and I are saying the same thing, Dr. George. Well, let me tell you, if you ever need my help in anything or you have a question, I want to be a resource because I, want, I love what I do. I was, I was born to be a physician, and I'm, I can speak of thousands of doctors who believe what I do, that we want, just want to be able to help our patients practice the Hippocratic Oath and provide a service. And we don't want things that, that in, encroach on that interfere with that or obstruct it. Understood. And if we need to be in with you guys to help craft legislation, then you have, you know, a whole cohort of doctors who are willing and able to give you, uh, you know, their experience so your frame of reference becomes larger. Right. And this particular bill that passed is just the beginning of a larger conversation. And, and what you've just said is something we need to keep in mind as we move forward. Well, I just want to thank you again for your time. And call me if you if you have any if you need me. I'd be happy to be a resource. And anything else that comes down the pipe, I'm looking forward to having you back on. Great. I enjoyed our conversation, Dr. George. Thank you. Have a blessed day. You too. Bye bye. And thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.